Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to Business Builder Show, where we feature champions in their respective industries from throughout the planet. Our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to talk about being proactive against extortion. Dennis Underwood will lead us through that discussion. Dennis is a veteran uh, cybersecurity leader, inventor, and entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience. He's an uh, an expert at cryptology, intrusion, discovery, and analysis, having discovered multiple previously unreported intrusions to clients throughout his career. Currently, he's leading a team of like-minded experts delivering next-generation intrusion discovery and ransomware response automation tools to his customers. Dennis, it's fantastic to have you, sir. Thank you for having me, Bill. I really appreciate being here. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you, who do you serve? And my guess is, unfortunately... there's a lot of people that are under attack right now. So who do you serve, Dennis? Right. So it's primarily business customers is who we market to. And um, we should differentiate because it's really interesting. We've had people as far afield as like Central Africa uh, who have called while they're helping out like a UN mission or whatever. So we've had to refine that to surprisingly in, in the United States, refine it to businesses who have a technology based to their business operations. Uh, if it's a, uh, you know, uh, we, we actually watched a dental um, clinic, I guess is the right way to call it, over in Africa. And while they had all this great technology, they still had paper records for every single thing that happened. So a ransomware attack actually took out all of their computers. The doctors had just implemented the new technology like last year. So they just went right back to paper. Uh, and there was no extortion, you know, so we've learned it has to be a sweet spot for us as customers to say people who are really dependent, like most companies in America, you know, like that are dependent on uh, having a technology based their operations. Yeah, I love that technology base. Yeah, that definitely helps, uh, helps tighten, the, tighten the, uh, the description of who you serve. That's beautiful. So, Dennis, tell us about the problem uh, or problems that these people have and, uh, and uh, that you solve. Then after you tell us the problem, I'll ask you how you go about getting the problems fixed. Of course, why else are we in business, right? So, yeah. the, uh, so the problem is that uh, <clears throat> we're, we're seeing where there's just a, a massive scale of attacks that have been maturing over the last couple of years where attackers learned that they can steal your data and then encrypt your data they don't even have to encrypt a lot of it or all of it. They've learned they can just encrypt part of what, you know, an important server or maybe the payroll server on Friday the 15th when everyone gets paid, right? You know, and uh, they'll actually encrypt that. And the goal is to make for them is to make your business operations have the biggest burn, go into the red immediately and be interrupted uh, in various ways. Uh, and they've learned to do that with encryption, with stealing your data and threatening to release your client lists, things like that. Uh, that's really the problem that I'm solving is we got to remove, no different than a kidnapping, if you're going to, you know, like say Central America and you're an executive and the insurance company, you know, has questions, you know, um, it's no different than that, really. It's just, okay, instead of a person getting extortion, it's the business and it's the data of the business. And, and we're, uh, we're aiming to solve that from happening. So, uh, uh, Dennis, so tell us how your organization 
typically solves those problems. And maybe uh, if you could think about a, a case study, an actual case study, and kind of walk it through, you know, how, uh, how this customer came into your sphere, what they told you, then what, what your team did and how it went through and how it was ultimately resolved. And if it takes a couple of case studies, Dennis, go ahead and tell us a couple of case studies. Absolutely, absolutely. So we have uh, two types of customers that come to us. The first is the cleanest in that, and, and it, it's increasingly been the sweet spot for us, is people who preventatively realize this data extortion uh, risk is really important. Sometimes that comes from like the CFO. Sometimes our biggest advocates actually are CFOs who got to see the balance sheet maybe on a, uh, you know, on a quarterly report uh, for a company and they got to see how the company went in the red for the next year just because of a small incident, right? Um, so uh, we have people who say, I want to mitigate that risk now. Uh, and uh, those types of customers are a little bit easier for us because uh, it's not like D-Day proverbially, you know, in the business, uh, not, you know, Omaha Beach. It's instead where it's about, it's a clean environment, right? We can go in, do a quick deployment, and now they're protected, just like uh, no different than, uh, you know, having, a, you know, an airbag in a vehicle. Uh, it's a lot easier to talk about and to convince the customer on the showroom floor than at the body shop afterwards, right? So do these, uh, the people in the clean, this, this clean segment, is there something that, that sort of sparks them to say, you know, I better get this insurance uh, now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, and it is an insurance product, you're right. This isn't going to increase their profitability. I think right. my next company will definitely be lined up with, with profit that way. You know, like, right. uh, I've, I've done the insurance route with the product. Now it's time to do an automation for something else, right? Maybe straws, I don't know. But like anyway, so facetiously, right? But um, so uh, what we do is uh, when we talk to them, we try to do a discovery. Of course, we're the vendor. I've learned now that I'm the OEM. So I have a little bit different of a flavor of a relationship with this prospect uh, versus an, a, you know, a, an advocate. Uh, the, uh, sometimes it is that they got hit and they won't tell us and that they, okay. but it was enough they could stay in business or maybe they had a, a large enough organization and we'll watch or maybe a supplier got hit, uh, like maybe like a grocery chain and, and then their Vienna sausage supplier. I don't know. But like, uh, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, and then they so, thought- So they, actually, so you're saying that somebody could have actually gotten extorted a little bit, but they're embarrassed to, to admit it literally. Right, right. And uh, we see that actually in all of our data. I did a, a presentation at a conference where I had to redact my data sources because a little bit embarrassing. But what we keep finding over and over again is that there's no required reporting of losses uh, or attacks the way there would be with, for instance, uh, NHTSA, you know, reporting uh, vehicular or airline accidents, right? We don't, there's not that mechanism. The government's getting better at trying to enforce that. But what we see is that in many cases, the, uh, the numbers on what the extorters are getting sent to their bank accounts uh, are, are vastly larger numbers than what's being reported really across the world, but we'll say the US and NATO basically, um, uh, what's being reported. So if $30 million in ransoms are being reported and you can multiply that based on insurance findings to say roughly 60 to $80 million in damages perhaps, 
uh, what you see is that, well, someone paid the attacker a total of $300 million, right? And it's a much larger number. So what that's telling me is that because the, the, the possible share cost or the share value and the valuation of the company on their 409As and on their quarter reports and everything is just so damaging that they, they're not reporting all of that if they could help it, which kind of makes sense, right? You know, you, you do what you have to do uh, as, as a business owner. Um, so for us, we've learned, and this kind of plays in a little bit in my intelligence background, if they don't feel comfortable disclosing it, then we don't ask. No different than, I don't know, if you're on a mission and, and you know, someone you know, their name is Phil, and they tell you their name is Mark, you, you, don't, you don't correct them, right? You just say, okay, moving on, you know? Um, and it's very similar to, to those kind of uh, situations. So we don't pry, um, but if sometimes it does come out. If we see that they're in a rush to install that day, then we, we kind of, you know, you know, at that point, you know, why, why are you buying, uh, you know, medical or life insurance today? You know, why does it have to be done like that? You know, and that's kind of what we've seen. Sometimes, though, it is that second category of customers where they have already had the incident. Um, I, I always do the, um, the analogy that it's a little bit like flying in, like maybe you're a paraglider. D-Day happened six hours ago. You're flying in behind enemy lines. The shooting starts before you're even on the ground, right? And so sometimes it is that situation, and we always have to warn them, you know, in 80% of the attacks, the attackers will extort that, that company or affiliate again within about a year or two. Uh, okay. that, it's it's okay. sad that we have those numbers now, uh, better for sales, right, and explainers, worse than that we've gotten to that stage, right, where we're talking about reinfection and re-extortion rates. Um, but because of that, we always warn them, hey, when you when we land, when that, para, that paraglider platoon goes and lands, uh, there's going to be a lot of shooting. There's going to be a lot of mess and a lot of noise because we're kicking out all the attackers that are still in there. Um, and so that's the second category where the, you know, the, the attack has already been going on. Everyone's hurting. Uh, the insurance company normally is involved. Uh, they might have qualified or semi-qualified people helping on the recovery. Uh, and then we kind of swoop in and we just create a little bit bigger of a mess. But ultimately, it's, 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 you know, it's like getting sick after that flu vaccine for a little bit, right? Where you kind of feel down for a day. But then overall, you're in a much better place. And that's kind of where uh, that's the second kind of customer. Longer sales cycle, I should have said, longer installation cycle, shorter sales cycle, shorter sure. pipeline, right, time. But yeah. ultimately, the revenue is much more expensive. So uh, uh, product-wise, uh, are you, you tend to be more project oriented or are you a retainer or oriented organization? So I, I've chosen to go the route of the software as a service model, the SaaS okay. model. It plays well into the speed needed to actually, you know, take care of business given our, our sales pitch, right? Which is, hey, we're going to prevent the ransomware, right? You have to have millisecond response times far, far, far beyond what any person could ever do, right? So my challenge as I grew and continue to grow the company is always, uh, I always call services a drug, right? Because, uh, you know, you can, you can really get into that services game, but it ties down your inventors. It ties down the innovators that are building the product. Yeah. It's, quick, it's quick revenue, but it's much lower scalability and much lower uh, profit, quite honestly, right? Um, because that R&D isn't necessarily used as much. And so 
we've really focused on assisting on the project based but being very careful that I don't end up diluting the value of my company where I end up having all of my innovators, you know, tasked out on, on advisory services. So a lot of times we use partners for that, where the partner, that's their whole business, of course, right? They're built around it. A services industry company is much different creature than a product company, right? And so uh, in, in arguably each, each style of professional is better at what they do than trying to cross over. Uh, so we uh, we stay on the product side. Okay, that's I I, I thought I, I thought I knew that. I want to make sure that our listeners understand that that's what you are. You're a you're a long term engaged partner for them. Which brings me to my next question. Now you're in an industry that has lots of players, a lot of competitors yeah. of, of yours, and I would imagine. Well, in fact, I know that some are terribly awful. And there are some that are high quality, but your uh, business has a fantastic reputation. But tell us specifically how you're different than your competition and why our listeners should be talking with you to the exclusion of everybody else. Right. So the the first, it, it fundamentally, uh, I, I think that cybersecurity and that computer software in general, right? We're getting better and smarter, but I, I look at uh, trades like legal professions, civil engineering, and, and there's, you know, there's millennia at this point of history of, hey, we better regulate and really check on these guys, you know, these men and women that are building our bridges, you know, to make sure yeah, they don't have a right. lot of success. Cybersecurity and software engineering, we're just not there yet. You know, culturally as a society, uh, you know, uh, I had um, a professor, and then I'll get to exactly your question, you know, who said, uh, hey, you can put your foot down and say you're not going to do something as a software engineer, but you better have your resume ready, you know, because there, there's not that protection or enforcement like the bar would have for, for a legal entity, right? So uh, having said that, in cybersecurity, the biggest challenge that we've had is that, yes, you're absolutely right. There are fantastical claims being made and have been made for, you know, how many decades now about computer security. Um, and the the way that they can be assessed are limited, especially for your buyers. When I'm speaking to a COO of a company who might do like a oil and gas industry, maybe a, you know refinery parts, they don't have the time, the knowledge, or the skill to differentiate which sales pitch is you know selling them bad stuff versus the right one, right? So for our differentiation, that did play into why we have the products. It was that you know. Um, is I, I'm not a good barker. I'm never going, as in like the carnival sense, I'm never going to be able to make promises, you know, uh, from an emotional standpoint that I can't keep. Um, and I said, I need to differentiate with code. I can do that with code and products. With the cryptography background from NSA, uh, and before that too, I did some stuff that got their attention, you know, which like, uh, we can talk about maybe over a beer, you know, and I don't want those. Okay. Yeah. Um, but um, what happened was, was that, um, I realized with ransomware and data extortion, encryption is such a key part of that, along with all of my trade craft I've learned. So I said, you know what, if I can automate this, because there's no way that I could find enough people, I bootstrapped on services. And I said, I can't find enough people, no one else can, right? And so I need to find a way to automate this, which plays well into bypassing snake oil, right? You know, saying, look, I'm going to build something and you're going to know if it works or not. If all your bolts strip, you know that's a bad bolt provider, right? Uh, you know, and same thing with me. I said, 
I'm going to build things that are visibly able to have a positive effect. With ransomware, it encrypts all your data. It's very visible. It's not like the rest of security tools and, and attacks out there that kind of are hidden and you don't really know if they're really found or not. Right. It's very in your face, just like an explosion, right? And so I said, I'm going to be able to make bulletproof vests or airbags if you know, you're in vehicles. You know what works or not. You know, you know because of the effects it has. So that's kind of what differentiated us was to say, let's build something that works. Works, actually, uh, it's a good case study for any entrepreneur out there. We made a really impossible product that would automatically break the encryption and decrypt the ransomware once it was running. Um, fantastic. It took us months of research, right? Then the customer base, the savvy business people said, you mean to tell me you watched my business blow up? You watched my QuickBooks and my accounting system just go away and you expect me to be, you know, you, you decrypted it 10 minutes later, but you watched that happen. Why didn't you pull the plug on the bomb? You know, and it, it was a big, it, it was a good lesson for me, a good period of growth. I realized the super hard technical thing we did was misaligned to what the business needed, right? So we pivoted actually a little bit and we, uh, we made it so it could prevent the ransomware and fill that gap where we said, look, everyone else is playing catch up. We need to, when, when they, you know, they say, oh, look, the bomb is going off. The fire has started. Hurry up, put out some fire extinguishers. You know, we said, I want that to not, that fire never to even go off. I want to catch it at the spark and then just contain it. And there's no fire damage at all. And that's what we did. And that's been our big differentiation. It seems we, we seem to have, you know, as a bootstrap company, I have to sell what I can sell. I can sell it works, right? I, I don't have a $10 million uh, kind of trust fund to draw from, just, you know, figure it out. So I looked at it and I realized we have a hit here. You're like, this is exactly aligned now to what the businesses need. The attackers made it easier in that they just kept on getting better and better, you know? And so yeah. uh, we have something aligned. It's been a, it's been a good trip so far. Well, sounds great. Now, uh, uh, I would imagine that the, uh, if if you will, the mm, the hobbyist ransomware people are long gone, replaced by super skillful people that you're fighting against all the time. Right. It, it is interesting, you know. And we had spoken right before uh, we hit record. We we're talking about a, a you know distributor. What's really interesting is as I have been maturing the cyber crucible corporate strategy and sales strategy over the last couple of years, really for the ransomware product, um, the, uh, the ransomware attackers have also matured um, at about the same rate, sometimes faster in some areas, not on the, in the encryption. Yes, their products have gotten a lot better, you know, um, but also on the sales strategy. Uh, it's really interesting to watch they have matured their channel strategy. They have distributors now. They have channel partners. They have the equivalent of MSPs. They have help desk outsourcing stuff going on. The employees actually, uh, they, they started to do the specialization where some gain access to a target where just like in a sales department for a corporation, they say, okay, we're going to target, you know, th this healthcare industry vertical and we're going to tar target Missouri, you know, and, on the criminal side, they've reached that maturity now where they're saying things like, I want a business with a minimum $10 million revenue. I want it to be in the Eastern seaboard and I want it to be a legal, a legal profession. Uh, and you have 60 days to come up with the prospect list, you know, and. Wow. That is fantastic. Isn't That's that crazy? Amazing. Yeah. And, and my sales guys sometimes use wow. that as their, their target, right? 
Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, so do they have do they have an SEC sick code? <laughs> I I think part of it is um, what is that? Uh, you know, uh, the amateurs. You know, I've I've watched and and sometimes they'll burn their their MSSP. We do see, you know, they're sorry, they're a reseller. Put it that way. Yeah, I've seen where they, you know, the the the, the developer. Please spoken them a couple times too. They they call us because they they see us work and they get mad or curious. Um, they'll actually, you know, you know, they'll sometimes have back doors in with their resellers because uh, they don't really have the same legal uh, channel partner contracts you know, that are fully enforceable the way we do, right? And so uh, it seems like there's more of like a mafia style. Uh, don't you know? Uh, we'll call it chain of command. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it certainly sounds that way. Well, uh, okay, I think you've done a fantastic job of describing who you serve. I particularly like the the, if you will, the. Uh, the, the cleaning up the debris after the fire versus being proactive, getting out in front of it and getting the this, this insurance policy, if you will, in place. We understand, I understand that. I totally understand the differentiation between you and your competition. And thank you very much for explaining how sophisticated uh, the, uh, if you will, the enemy is particularly in terms of business with with having call centers and salesforce and marketing people and channel partners and wow that was quite a, 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 i just didn't realize that i envisioned they were all sort of individual right but they're not that's very interesting so let's transition now uh to uh, dennis to your business and how you built it and i think uh if you'd be uh, good enough to go back and kind of pre-business and kind of give us your backstory a bit. And then as you go through telling us your story of building uh, Cyber Crucible, then uh, uh, I'd like to hear some of the successes, wins, you've touched on a couple of those, and a couple of the crashes and burns that you had. And then most importantly, what were the lessons that you learned along the way? Absolutely. So I, I think, first of all, uh, when I was, uh, honestly, the, the, the entrepreneur story started when I was an undergraduate in, in college, and it, uh, it just, it, it, was a, it was a vehicle of necessity, like many entrepreneurs, right? And so uh, I was trying to get an IT help desk job, like entry level-ish, you know, uh, right around the time that like Marconi and all the rest were shutting down and having uh, outsourcing being done in Pittsburgh. Um, it was one of the IT crashes, I think late nineties, you know, and, uh, I was trying to get a job and I was next to a whole bunch of people that are now my age, you know, old guys, you know, like, and, um, and I realized, you know, they were all, they all had families and they're all trying to get jobs and their resumes were much better than mine as a 20 year old or 21 year old, you know? And so I came back after I couldn't get hired and I said, how about under Dennis Underwood Incorporated, you know, and. Uh, they liked that idea, I guess, because the companies had good benefits and they could just kind of hire me for a contract and then have me go away. That started that journey. Fast forward to grad school. When I graduated grad school, I had a little bit of loans. Uh, the military helped on that, of course. Uh, and um, I also had a house and a wife and a kid on the way. Um, and I was paying a mortgage while in grad school on my own time because I was able to build, you know, get get the sales out and get the marketing and get uh IT security services at the time, right? Uh, and it was a good, it was a good gig, you know. Went to went to NSA for a while, uh, did some contracting too, but I had that entrepreneur bug there, right? And of course, uh, as a doe I should have known from the army, but as a doe-eyed kind of like younger guy, 
it was like, I'm going to, you know, like when I got there, I was like, oh, NSA is supposed to go to the government agency. You know, it's kind of like, you know, and I said, I'm going to change it just like everyone else says, you know, and then of course, you know, they always see these young guy like, you know, burn himself out trying to uh, get government to move faster than it wants, you know. Um, and I really wanted to get back into the commercial space. And uh, I'd done some cool things that had some pretty big effects, even though my name wasn't on them, uh, in, the, in the commercial spaces to help people. And I started with services. Um, I did look around in, in the Maryland, D.C. area. They'll, they'll argue it until they're blue in the face, but it's just not a good ecosystem for early stage funding and for early stage catapulting ideas out to the real world. They're very focused on government contracting. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, every time I got an investment offer, I, I said, I can probably get a government contract. That would be the same number. And so I'm going to keep on doing that. Yeah. Fast forward, eventually I left. Uh, I realized, you know, I was flying over Pittsburgh, my hometown. And I said, you know what? Um, I've been building these, you know, these products to go to commercial. It's, I think it's time to leave the nest, you know? And so at home, you know, I had, you know, uh, I didn't, the parents got to that age where we had to go back to Pittsburgh a lot anyway for repairing houses and things like that, that, that section of life, right? And I said, you know, okay, well, um, I was flying over Pittsburgh one day and I called the wife, you know, and I texted and I said, hey, why am I flying over Pittsburgh? Why are we making these weekend trips constantly? I don't even have that many customers in DC, Maryland anymore that I want. They're all contracting customers. They're not product customers. And, uh, we, uh, you know, we, we, we talked to the kids. The kids were like, you know, I'm getting bullied or at school. And I was like, okay, well, this is just basically, if there's a sign, this is it. All three, family, spouse, work, it's all lined up, you know? And so we, uh, we moved to Pittsburgh and, and moved our base operations here. It's been, it's been great. We're closer to customers. Uh, it's, a more, uh, it's a more commercially focused uh, environment. And um, that's kind of where, you know, where we've gone. And, and I haven't looked back. Uh, it's, it's been great. We moved the month before COVID uh, lockdown started. Um, so that was a challenge to overcome, right? To dig deep. Uh, but we did it. And uh, we were able to increase revenues all the way through, which is really great. So uh, tell us about some of the uh, um, failures. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I totally glossed through that, not on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, first of all, the first uh, lesson that I learned was that if you're an entrepreneur with an idea and you're in an environment, uh, let, let's just take away, there, there's two lessons. If you're in an environment where there's just not much much high quality investment happening that you're seeing, I, I don't think there is a single town in this, in this country, at least, that doesn't have entrepreneurs with great ideas just waiting to bust out. It, it's, you know, no matter where you go, I bet you I can find someone in some village or city that's the great idea. That's like the next big thing. It seems like having the ecosystem and the opportunity for the players to help you along on that journey to where you want to go. That seems to be the first alignment that I would say. Um, we, you know, we. I was talking to my wife and I say we should have left the DC. I, I should have not done the contracting thing. I should have like just you know lived on Raymond Noodles for a little bit, had enough of a nest egg, and then not tried to build out of there. You know, um, the the second is that you know. We had government customers in the military that never were aligned with our vision and were often at odds with our desire to move away from cyber operations and do all those sneaky little tools, you know, that, the, that SWAT teams use or whatever. 
and right. move into this defensive commercial stance, right? And so it's almost like, you know, working at Ford, I, well, Ford is electric now, but let, let's say that Ford was still on the gas route, you know? No. And then you're trying to build an electric car and sell to Ford and Ford, Ford is aligned on metal, on that gasoline petrol vehicle, you know, and they're, they're just not seeing eye to eye with you and they probably never will, right? They might buy one one day, but it's not because of you, you know? And so, um, but they're happy, you know, to have you work there designing more, you know, more gasoline engines, you know? And so that's going to be what happened. And so I would look at your initial customers, even when you're bootstrapping and say, um, is this customer realistically ever going to be a customer of my product? And even worse, are their needs aligned where their needs are for you not to have that product, right? And I think those two things, the, the ecosystem and the early stage customers, I think I look back and I, you know, I, I learned some lessons that are very costly, right? It was hurting the business. And um, having said that, those are the two things that I regret, but I don't know, unless I had a big mentor that, you know, could identify both, I don't see how I come up any other way. So hopefully no. someone watches this and, and they can say, okay, let me look at what I have going on right now in my business, you know, and, and see if it lines up or not. So here we are just after Easter 2022. So what's holding you back right now, Dennis? That's a great question. So the, the first is that, you know, um, I would say the biggest thing holding me back is, you know, I, I, I bootstrapped this to the point where I think there's an opportunity cost that we're probably losing a little bit. And this isn't some sneaky sales pitch for an investor, right? You know, um, and what's happened is, is we're seven years into this, right? I've been bootstrapping through, we've had a couple uh, product fit adjustments and sales culture fit adjustments. Really, really happy with my team right now. We're, we're aligned and it's showing on the books, you know? Um, but then what's happened is, is like, uh, I've noticed on some of these pitches, I want to have a collaborative conversation with these investors to see if uh, it's this really good fit. I, I kind of take it now as, okay, I, I'm selling an important part. I'm selling like a, like a, a kidney, right? I can do without it, right? Um, I can help someone with it better, or, you know, I wish I could say I could run faster or something without the, the analogy kind of breaks down. Right. But what I've learned is that, you know, I, I'm looking at like these, these folks, like business partners, and, and I think they're used to just getting all of these um, pitches all day from, in, you know, from possible investments from folks that don't have that emotional uh, baggage, right. Of having like earned every share in that company. Right. And all of my employees have shares. So I'm like, okay, well, they, they believed in me this far. I don't want them to be diluted out, you know? So I'm like, we have to make sure we have the right investment at the right time. Um, that actually right now, I, I think that's, that, that is Dennis, the CEO problem, right? The founder problem. It's probably not unique to me, right? But seven years in, you, you have that, that emotional tie. You've made it that far. You've overcome so many obstacles. If it was day one, I'd probably be a lot freer if someone gave me the same, you know, investment opportunity. I wouldn't have all that emotional tie-in, you know, having gone through and, earned every every dollar right you know so that's kind of where i'm at right now which is interesting i'd love to hear some opinions if you have a comment section or whatever on on that from some folks maybe have done that before you know beautiful that's beautiful so uh, a lot of people listening to what you're saying uh potential customers certainly potential partners and employees potential investors so how can these uh, various people get a hold of you dennis you know the the easiest way that i have found to get a hold of me is to hit me up on linkedin um, where I, I'm, I'm active on it. Um, I respond to comments as much as I can. Um, 
also the emails, you know, I, I get so many emails like everyone else that it's sometimes hard to filter out, uh, you know, the sales pitches from the, uh, from the, the valuable connections, right? So find me on LinkedIn, Dennis Underwood. Um, I think that's me and a pharmaceutical executive or something. Uh, probably way smarter than me at chemistry and stuff, right? So you'll know real quick it's not him, you know, uh, but feel free to reach out. That's beautiful. So uh, I've asked you quite a few questions, the one that came to mind, but there's maybe one question that I haven't asked that you were waiting for. So Dennis, what would that unasked question be and what's the answer to that? Oh, man. Um, you know what? Uh, I think and I'm probably shooting myself in the foot here, uh, but but the one thing um, that every time uh, I, I, I ask myself, I'm making the fly if you can't tell, but uh, I ask myself or, or if I'm asked, I'm constantly reevaluating when enough is enough, um, which is really interesting, right? And I'm sure every single founder or business owner always thinks that, right? Like, okay, what, what is my number? Because that number changes uh, week to week or month to month because as long as you're still growing and haven't plateaued. Uh, so for me, it's okay, when, when is that right time? You know, it's not gonna be when I'm you know, looking to retire, of course. But I, you know, I think we, we joked in the beginning, um, you know, I first spoke, this is an insurance product, right? This is not going to help someone's profitability any more than an airbag would, right? Uh, in fact, it increases costs just like an airbag does. This is marginal. It's very expensive uh, when, when you do the risk equation. Right. But then for me as a company, it's like, well, I'm going to plateau eventually and I have other ideas, right? And that doesn't mean I'm going to give up cheap, right? Because I'm still growing, uh, but there's going to be a point, right? So. Anything that in the audience, you know, any, any war stories on when they knew it was kind of time, not the whole, you know, not, not the, hey, I was going bankrupt stories, because that's, that's not really relevant to this business, you know, but, um, but the whole, you know, like, hey, when, when do you know it was time to maybe uh, try a new adventure and, and take, your, uh, take your cash and invest some of it into the next, uh, next innovation? That's, that's the one question that um, I ask myself constantly, and I don't think I'm going to have a perfect answer ever. But experiential answers always help. Provide Beautiful. Yeah, I like right? that. I like that. I like the fact that you said I'll never have a perfect answer. That's exactly right. But it's a great question to always have in the front of your mind. Dennis, thank you very much for sharing your, co your company, your product, your customers, giving us uh, the way you built your business, the lessons you've learned. All that was fantastic. Everybody enjoyed it very much. Certainly I did. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Bill. You're welcome. Now, everybody, look, in closing, let's focus on a single fact, and that is this. Our businesses do not become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner first learning and then applying a proven combination of having the right mindset of a dedication to a system of management. And number three, leveraging high-performance teams. And that includes people that work directly for you and outside resources like Dennis Underwood right here that's available to help you out in this potentially super expensive experience that you never ever want to have in your companies. So thanks for listening. Dennis, once again, thanks for sharing your time with us. Absolutely.